today are are real hacks. They're cutting corners. They're, you know, sort of looking like they know what's going on. Welcome to our restaurant. What can I do for you, sir? Please choose from the menu on my screen. Wow. What reaction do you think you'd have if you called up a business or you went into a shop and you were greeted by a robot? Do you think you'd be frustrated? Maybe you'd be surprised or interested. You might never have seen a physical robot in a customer service role, but you might see one in the future, according to my guest on Business Briefing this week. Professor Marianne Williams from uh, the University of Technology, where I am Director of Disruptive Innovation. Marianne is part of a lab where students have been watching customers' reactions when it comes to robots. But before we dive into talking about R2-D2 and HAL 9000, Marianne can explain the differences between the various types of robots. If you look at science fiction, robots are physical entities, they they have a body and uh, they make intelligent decisions and um, do physical work. And and then there's this other kind of uh, robot that we've seen over the last few years, which is all digital. It's, It's only software. It doesn't have a body. And yet it is making intelligent decisions. And they are obviously very, very different kinds of systems and they have different kinds of capabilities and different sorts of impact uh, in society and business. So is there a particular type, do you think, that's used more by business? It certainly sounds like perhaps the digital robot might be used more just in terms of a sort of a cost uh, side of things. Well, well, yes. So digital robots have been around for a lot longer than physical robots, I mean, in terms of the real world. Uh, over the last few years, though, I think the scale of where we're seeing them has increased dramatically, but also their capability because we're collecting so much data, so that's now available to then develop their analytics algorithms that can make sense of these vast sort of tools of, of data and used to make you know very sophisticated decisions. And the key issue is that no human could possibly understand all of this data in real time to be able to compete with this technology. And we've seen, I mean, a high-profile case just recently of um, IAG announced that it would fill a a bunch of positions that were previously taken up by workers with robots and it's for customer service, and I'm not sure in this case whether it was digital or physical robots, but is this happening more and more often, this sort of customer service role in particular being filled by digital robots or other robots? Yes, because uh, as I said, you know, there's uh, so much data even about a single customer that if you can actually use it, you can offer very, very highly customized services. So, you know, that is really the attraction for a business because they can create more value for their customers uh, using technology. And some of my colleagues have, have sort of suggested it. In a way, it's kind of going back in time when we had very intimate or when business had very intimate relationships with its customers because, you know, it didn't have so many and there was very little technology, so it was all face-to-face. And it was a very sort of intimate relationship that, you know, business could sort of leverage. I mean, if, you know, the classic example is is the bank manager uh, in the town. He knew 
everybody's uh, sort of desires in terms of, okay, they're paying off their house, you know, for the next five years and then they wanted to, you know, send their kids to private schools or buy a car or go on a holiday. And so he could sort of walk them through these challenges and, and, and that was creating a lot of value for the customers and um, it was a good business for the bank. But these days, you know, it's all about scale and being internationally competitive and so there are a lot more sort of pressures such that, you know, those old models don't really work. But when you move to these uh, robot uh, service providers, then you're kind of recreating that very old world of, of having very customized service, you know, a customer of one. And you can do that with um, technology much more easily and much more scalably uh, than with people. It seems that perhaps with information, like you said, and data that the robots are competing, but what happens when it comes to the emotional connection? Surely that bank manager in the town, because he knew that whatever that family was doing on the weekend or could chat to them about, you know, what they were up to today or those sort of human interactions shape that somehow. Mm, Exactly. So, you know, we can't really recreate that and we, we don't want to anyway, really, because it, it wasn't very cost effective and it doesn't really scale. And then we've embraced our technology to kind of get us uh, to this point. And it, it is very distant. There is no emotional connection. So I don't think that, you know, robots are going to be taking people's jobs because they're taking those jobs and they're also creating new opportunities because... Other people are sort of inventing new ways of of doing things. I think this is, you know, maybe the speed with which this is happening, you might argue, is is kind of getting faster. What signifies that to you? What why is it getting faster? Do you think? Uh, I think because technology is getting cheaper, it's being adopted faster. What does the research say about what customers like or don't like about dealing with customer service robots? Well, one of the attractions of dealing with a technology rather than a person is that technology doesn't make judgments. People tend to be happier sharing information with the machine or with the technology because, you know, if you say, okay, my my salary is $50,000 a year, then the the machine doesn't think that's good or bad. If you say you're uh, a a female in, in the form that you write down, the machine doesn't care. But, you know, people do have bias and, and they can, people make decisions very quickly about whether they like you or not, you know, in the first three microseconds. So how you're treated with a person and also how you feel about that and your response to their response, you know, it gets complicated. And a lot of people don't, you know, would sort of much rather work with a machine. And in fact, that's, I think, their main advantage. Now, we all have had great experiences with people, um, you know, offering um, services, customer service, right? When, when you get the customer service uh, person empathizing with you, really understanding what your issues are, you're not, you know, you might be returning something and they're not um, making judgments. They're putting themselves in, in your shoes and they, they're understanding why you needed to return this and, and they're very helpful. And then they might make other suggestions. Well, you know, you didn't like this for this reason, but have you thought about this? You know, that kind of experience um, is usually really great if the, the person in the business can help you solve your problem or add new value to what you're trying to do because they understand what you're trying to do. 
So I think the holy grail is probably to develop technologies with that level of um, empathy and also intelligence to be offering, you know, what's the best service. How close do you think we are to having to dealing with as customers those sorts of robots with businesses? Well, this is the new frontier. I think we definitely know how to build systems that can customise to a certain degree. Uh, One of the big challenges in computer science is dealing with context. So what you want to be able to say to, you know, your home device to turn, turn on the lights in the kitchen, okay? And then you want to be able to say, and the bathroom. You don't want to say, turn the lights on in the kitchen, turn the lights on in the bathroom, turn the lights off in the garage, right? If we're talking about lights, I just want to be able to say on and off in the different rooms. Okay, so that brings in, sounds trivial, but it actually requires a broad understanding of context. It seems like there's a real novelty value in going up to a robot still and and interacting with them. What have you found in your research in terms of the human and physical robot interaction? So uh, there aren't uh, that many sort of robots you can actually get up close with. So most robots are actually kept in cages. Uh, They're dangerous. They're in cages. Not to keep them in, but to keep humans out. Because uh, if a robot comes close to a person, they need to be able to perceive them. They need to be able to uh, anticipate their next action, where they're going to move, so they don't sort of crash into them. And so there are very few robots that can actually get close to people, or very few robots people can get close to. UTS students have been conducting experiments and seeing if people... Uh, like robots, if people want robots to help them, if people will engage with a robot, uh, if does the robot need to offer chocolates or samples to get people's attention. And um, I mean, this is ongoing research, so you know, I, I can't, we haven't really taken the results back and, and looked at them. But we know from our earlier experiments and a lot of the other things that uh, we are doing at UTS that it's quite hard for a robot to get a human's attention. So there's the novelty factor. So, you know, of course, oh, what is this thing? It's got lights and, and looks interesting and, and people will go. But then people really expect to see 3PO. And when they don't get it, they go, nah, you know, maybe there's something else somewhere. So I think robots today have got a big job ahead trying to just engage uh, people uh, to get their attention so that they can then offer a, a service or at least begin to discover what um, the human might like right now without the human having to press a lot of buttons or tell the robot a lot of information. And the other area that is particularly interesting is how people respond to the look of the robot. So, for example, it happens in the the shopping centre where a robot might follow you. We could just turn its head and just follow you. And you, you really feel like it's noticed you it knows who you are or it, you know, it, it's sort of doing this um, for a reason, okay, even though it's not. So there is a lot going on around how we feel, how robots make us feel when they uh, kind of move or make eye contact. And there's something else called the uncanny valley. And researchers in human-robot interaction found out very early that the closer a robot is to a human, a human form, a human face, then the eerier and the weirder you feel. Because it, and you don't really have a lot of control over that. Um, it's just, you, you feel um, 
uncomfortable when the robot is too like a human. It's called the uncanny valley. Yeah, so there's a lot of very good research about these kinds of things. And clearly, if you are have a robot in your business and you're trying to use it to engage customers or to help customers, then these are all the kinds of complicated issues you need to take into account. That's Marianne Williams, Professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Founder and Director of the University's Innovation and Enterprise Lab. I'm Jenny Henderson, Business and Economy Editor. Our theme music is by Ben Sound, with some additional music today by Gautier. That song you heard at the start is called Thanks for Your Time. This is the last of our business briefings. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll have a new format for you. In the meantime, if you want to send us some feedback on the podcast, please email it through to ask at theconversation.edu.au. That's ask at theconversation, or one word, .edu.au.